This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing an article on chronic pain and how it impacts recovery from substance use disorder. But John, before we start talking about your article, I really wanted to share some exciting podcast news with our listeners. We are now able to offer Category 1 CME for listening to this podcast through our new CME sponsors, the MyCares program from Michigan State University. So you can go to www.mycares.org and make yourself an account. It's totally free. You'll take a brief quiz about the episode and then you'll get your credit. There will be a link in the show notes about exactly where to go. And eventually all of our episodes will be eligible for CME. We just are going to work through our back catalog and we'll roll out the CME credits as we get them organized throughout the summer. So stay tuned. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. I mean, this has been two years in the making, right? And I think that um, there's been a lot of uh, effort put into this. I'll be honest with you, uh, Sonia, you definitely have been the uh, powerhouse between making this happen. So uh, we appreciate that. And I think it's going to be really great for everyone that already listens to get credit for this since it's something that, you know, we'll kind of get two birds with one stone here. And for those of you who aren't board certified in addiction medicine who are listening and who might need credits through the MATE Act, that's the new regulation that says that everyone with a DEA license needs eight hours of pain management and substance use disorder training, these podcasts will also count for that. So if you like podcasts and you need your MATE Act credits to renew your DEA license, you can give us a listen. So John, is there anything you want to share with our audience in addiction medicine this week? Yeah, I read an interesting uh, article from Script News about Sweden. So in case anyone hasn't been paying attention, Sweden is actually about to be declared one of the first smoke-free countries in Europe. And to be defined as smoke-free, you have to have less than a 5% uh, tobacco use rate amongst your population. And Sweden's currently the lowest at 5.6%. And, you know, the, the kind of interesting thing about the article is they talked about how Sweden got there. And I think that, you know, how you regulate and how you um, make changes from a government perspective to kind of disincentivize um, unhealthy lifestyle choices and incentivize healthy lifestyle choices is always like an area of debate. Do you legalize something? Or do you just kind of make uh, restrictions that make it kind of less um, user-friendly for people that do consume that product? So to give you a little bit of background, uh, back in 2003, uh, Sweden was not dissimilar to the United States whatsoever. So they had a, a tobacco use rate of 20% of, of smoked tobacco. And the U.S. at that time frame was 21%. So that's 2003. Fast forward uh, 20 years, um, and basically Sweden is now down to 5.6%. And the U.S., uh, based upon the CDC uh, statistics, was last cited at 11.5% for uh, people that use uh, inhaled tobacco. And, you know, what's the difference between the two of them? It's interesting. Sweden didn't criminalize uh, tobacco use. All they did was public policies that incentivized uh, kind of safe use. So uh, similar to the United States, they kind of taxed the product. They also prohibited smoking inside dwellings or inside public places, public areas that were outside that could also uh, be areas of significant secondhand smoke. They also outlawed that to not allow you to smoke, for example, at a park. Not unsurprisingly, there is a, a product called Snus in uh, Sweden that is kind of relatively on the rise. That's a smokeless tobacco product. But um, the thought is that that's possibly a safer alternative. So I think this is just one um, example of how kind of through policy changes, you can actually kind of change 
human behavior for the better for a population. Well, right. I mean, I think the interventions in the U.S. that have been most successful are ones that just make smoking inconvenient, expensive, hard to do, can't do it anywhere, cost a ton of money. And those have really helped people cut down on smoking, giving people incentives to do it. Yeah, definitely. So good luck, Sweden. Sounds like what? Just less than 1% percentage point to go? 0.6% to go. Oh my gosh. Well, that's awesome work, guys. Um, Since you were talking about Sweden becoming smoke-free, I thought I would mention one of the MMWR reports from the CDC. Those are the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports that described top-selling e-cigarette products in the United States. So since 2020, the FDA has been trying to restrict flavors in e-cigarettes. And you and I have talked some about Juul and other companies that market their stuff to kids through fruit flavors and candy flavors. But despite the efforts of the FDA to restrict flavors in e-cigarettes, more than 80% of disposable e-cigarettes sold have some flavor in them other than tobacco, menthol, and mint, which are the three flavors that are considered kind of acceptable and not marketed to children. I know you'll be happy to know, John, that Juul has dropped from the most popular e-cigarette brand to the second most popular. So they lost their top spot. Now they're number two. Um, Despite all their bad press and their fines, they're still apparently doing really good business. And the e-cigarette makers continue to make sweet, fruit-flavored products that appeal to teenagers. So in states where there are comprehensive flavor bans, for example, Massachusetts, the sales of e-cigarettes saw a sustained decline. But in states where flavored cigarettes are allowed, there's still a lot of e-cigarette sales and e-cigarette use. And I think e-cigarette makers are really looking to produce a whole new generation of people addicted to their product, addicted to nicotine. And they're using the same pharmacologic tools they use for cigarettes to make their products as appealing and easy to tolerate as possible. And I'm actually starting to see some papers come out now as I look through journals on vaping use disorder, a whole new substance use disorder that we've got now, um, and how to treat it and interventions for treating vaping use disorder. So for you addiction docs out there, get ready to treat yet another form of addiction that's sadly been allowed to sort of flourish and be promoted and advertised and sold to you know, all people, but primarily um, young people. So that was less cheerful than Sweden's news, but uh, stay tuned for articles about vaping use disorder. I've already got a good one queued up for some point in the fall. It is interesting how it's viewed. It seems to be much more like socially acceptable. And I think that's why it's flourishing. Um, Not to kind of derail the conversation, but I went to a a kid's birthday party the other day and a bunch of soccer moms were using jewel jewel, uh, vapes in the corner. And I was surprised because you would never expect this group to be doing that. And it just seemed like they thought it was socially acceptable. And I mean, it was in in that setting, which was surprising to me. Well, it's just hard because of course, Everybody has habits that aren't ideal for their health, you know, drinking alcohol, eating peanut M&Ms, whatever, sitting all day and not exercising. You know, we all do stuff that isn't ideal. And if nicotine weren't so addictive, you can think of nicotine use or vaping as an occasional thing you do. It makes you feel good. Not a huge problem in low doses, but the stuff is just so addictive that it seems like it's very difficult for people to use it only occasionally you know, the fact that it's addictive takes it into the realm of something that kind of hijacks your own personal will and your own sense of control over the product. Yeah, interesting commentary. So John, you ready to talk about this article? Yeah, definitely. I think we've got a a relatively interesting article tonight. Um, Just to kind of let the listeners know, there is going to be like a theme of of chronic pain with some of our articles in the coming uh, episodes here. But the article that I did was called uh, Persistence of Significant Pain Interference Following Substance Use Disorder Remission. 
negative association with psychological and physical recovery, and it's from drug and alcohol dependence from January 2022. So a little bit of background about this topic. Decades of research have documented a high level and wide range of physical and mental dysfunction experienced by people with substance use disorder diagnoses. There is limited research on functional improvement and well-being associated with substance use disorder in remission and the effects of persisting health problems such as pain on broader recovery. So we really don't understand that relationship yet. Chronic pain, a condition associated with even greater disability than stroke or renal failure, may be a particularly important contributor to disability during active substance use disorder and following substance use disorder remission. Comorbid chronic pain and substance use disorder appear to worsen clinical status and treatment response in both conditions, posing unique treatment challenges to patients and providers in both pain and substance use disorder clinics. While lifetime substance use disorder prevalence is documented to be between 3 to 48% of the general population, lifetime prevalence of substance use disorder among patients with chronic pain is considerably higher, documented 16 to 74% cases. Limited studies have indicated that the prevalence of chronic pain among individuals with substance use disorder is as high as 38%. While pain can precipitate substance use for sufferers searching for relief, the converse is also true with substance use associated with neurobiological changes leading to reciprocal worsening of pain and function. Substance use disorder remission can lead to decreased pain and improved function among some. However, subsequent protracted withdrawal syndrome and its associated neurobehavioral maladaption can lead to worsening pain and disability among others. Despite the diverse interaction between pain and substance use disorder, studies have not explored how chronic pain prevalence evolves and impacts residual dysfunction in substance use disorder remission. So what do you think about the topic in general, Sonia? Well, I'm really glad you're tackling this article. You know, I don't have a consistent feeling about chronic pain and how it impacts recovery. I have some patients who had chronic pain and feel a lot better once they are on buprenorphine and stable um, and their pain kind of disappears. They say, gosh, I I always had to take so many opiates because I had so much pain and now I just, my back doesn't even hurt at all. I've had other people who had chronic pain that was a lot worse in recovery because they were treating it with opioids and now they're not. And so they have a lot worse pain. Um, The one consistent thing I do see is that my patients have higher incidence of chronic pain than my general population patients. And a lot of them have lived pretty hard lives. They work physically demanding jobs. They've had a lot of injuries. They've been prone to accidents, either connected to substance use or not, but a lot of accidents. And they just haven't taken very good care of themselves throughout their lives or haven't had a lot of resources to take care of themselves. And so they have a higher incidence of chronic pain, I feel like, than my general medical patients. And most of them are pretty stoic about it. You know, patients in recovery are very loath to take prescribed opioids and part of what they do, I think, is kind of acceptance of the body they have and the pain that might come with it. So I do see it as a big factor with a lot of my patients, but I have no consistent trends to sort of point to. How about you? Yeah, I think a a student asked me about this. I'm like, oh yeah, it interacts. Don't know how, but it's there, right? We definitely see that this is a theme that comes up quite frequently with, you know, at times paradoxical interactions, right? Sometimes I feel people do better in recovery. Other times, people are no different in recovery, and pain is a topic of discussion more so than even their recovery. Um, so it, it's a common theme that I, I don't quite have my head wrapped around entirely how to deal with it. So what is the clinical question in this trial? Um, it has threefold. It's what is the prevalence of moderate to severe pain interference in patients with past year substance use disorder and substance use disorder in remission? 
What is the association between pain interference and self-reported psychological functioning in patients with past year substance use disorder and those with remission? What is the association between pain interference and self-reported physical function in patients with past year and substance use disorder in remission? So kind of active use and non-active use. So study design, so this is a subgroup analysis of 10,916 patients with at least one lifetime substance use disorder diagnosis drawn from the National Epidemiological Study on Alcohol and Related Conditions, Wave 3. So that's the NEZARC 3 trial. Anyone that's been studying for the addiction medicine boards, this is a very big trial that is often comes up on test questions. So NEZARC 3, just to give you like an overview, it's an observational cross-sectional survey of 36,309 non-institutionalized civilian adults, age 18 plus, conducted between April 2012 and June 2013. Measures of this come into different categories. So socio-demographic characteristics include age, gender, marital status, income, education, employment, urban residency. Substance use disorders, so they did diagnosis and status determined by self-reported responses to DSM-5 criteria, and time frame was also determined based upon self-reported information. Pain was assessed from an item on the 12-item short-form health survey version 2, that's the SF-12 version 2, and it's a single question uh, during the past four weeks, how much did pain interfere with your normal work? Psychiatric diagnoses, these were derived from the NIAA Alcohol Use Disorder and Associated Disabilities Interview Schedule 5, the Audit Disc 5, which uses DSM-5 criteria and includes PTSD, eating disorder, phobia, MDD, dysthymia, bipolar, generalized anxiety disorder, and panic disorder. They did medical diagnoses as a sum score from 18 surveyed medical conditions that they surveyed for on the survey. Function measures were subdivided also from the SF-12, and that was mental health and physical function. They derived a mental health component score or an MCS, was assessed from past month's self-reported psychosocial functioning regarding subjective distress and role limitations caused by emotional problems, vitality, social functioning, and mental health. They did a physical function score, a PFS, assessed physical role performance and functioning. The statistics in this study was actually relatively complicated with them using sequential bivariant followed by multivariant analysis to kind of do linkage of these topics to to each other. And in fact, I would say that, you know, from a statistics standpoint, this is probably one of the more complicated uh, statistics um, that we've gone through in one of our papers. I had to read that section several times. Well, it's complicated statistics and also it's like a complicated data set. You know, this isn't just like a retrospective chart review or some sort of big database study. Like these are questionnaires and surveys filled out by what, like 39,000 people? Yeah, that was the initial one. But when they they basically parred that down to 10,916 with substance use disorder reported. Only 10,900 people with like 40 different surveys they had to do. So this is like a lot of data here. Yeah, it, it seems like it relied heavily on the SF-12, which I printed it out to look at that. It's a relatively brief one-page survey. So a lot of the data they got from that, this seemed to be like the, the sweet spot for this particular analysis. So is this trial valid? Uh, there's no external funding for the study. Authors reported no conflicts of interest. Data was extracted from the NEZARC-3, which was sponsored and directed by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, so NIAA. Um, so no bias there. It was a large observational cross-sectional survey that featured subgroup analysis of these 10,916 individuals with a diagnosis of SUD, and it's from this much larger trial, as we discussed. 
that had over 36,000 individuals. Data was self-reported, so um, there's always a little bit of bias there with self-reported data. You know, um, when you look at actually the, the substance use disorder diagnoses here, this is a little different than our typical study. 88.7% reported alcohol use disorder. So this really was more kind of alcohol use disorder heavy. And a lot of our other studies that we talk about kind of in this journal club, I think, tend to focus on opioid use disorder. Very few patients were homeless. So a lot of our other studies that we've talked about here regarding our opioid use disorder patients, they're homeless. So there's a lot of social barriers to health there. I guess it also makes sense. It's a survey data. It's probably tougher to survey a homeless population. While the study focused on chronic pain, there was no specific chronic pain diagnoses that were captured for kind of analysis here. Data regarding primary areas of interest uh, was exclusively obtained from the subcomponent analysis of that uh, SF12, as we talked about. So the pain interference, mental health composite score, and physical function score, which were kind of their outcomes of interest here, came off of that single questionnaire, which, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly well validated, but it's, it's just that one capture point. Did you think it was valid? Yeah, I thought it was a valid trial. I mean, it just, it was so many surveys, like we said, even though they focused on one, this is a very well-known data set um, used in a lot of different research, validated instruments. So yeah, I thought it was a valid trial. I think it was, it was a good trial for sure. Right. So a little about the results. I'm going to go through, there's a lot of results. Like I said, they looked at this from a lot of different ways. So some of this I'm going to be a little bit um, briefer on, but um, some of it I'll kind of extrapolate on and talk a little bit further about. So who was this group, first of all? So socio-demographic characteristics. The mean age was 36.38 for people that had substance use disorder in the past year versus 46.75 for substance use disorder and remission. So kind of just off the bat, the two groups, they kind of broke down. The group in remission had about 10 more years of experience and life behind them. So um, that can contribute here a little bit. It was mostly male, mostly white. So 66.46% were white. 80.44% of the group in remission were white. So more white patients in the remission group, indicating probably more chance of recovery, also possibly more access to resources towards recovery, kind of trends with some of our other data regarding kind of health disparities. Most people were married or cohabitating with actually the group in remission having a higher rate of being married. So for those of you that are pro-marriage, another reason why that's a, a good institution for some. Very urban residency, so 74.5 to 83.73% were in an urban residency. Very few were uneducated, so only uh, 9 to 12%, depending upon the two groups, was less than high school educated, so not our typical group either. Most were employed, so 75 to 81% were employed. A very few homelessness, um, 2 to 4.4%, so a little different than our typical studies. 5,796 adults in the past year had substance use disorder, and 5,120 adults were in remission, so greater than 12 months of time not meeting that criteria. Among substance use disorder, 88.7% were alcohol use disorder, 24.6% reported another substance use disorder, and 14.3% reported more than one substance use disorder. Pain was super common. So 20.6% of adults with substance use disorder in the past year, so kind of the more active group reported chronic pain. 25.6% of adults with substance use disorder remission reported moderate to severe pain interference. So actually the group in remission had on average more patients reported chronic pain. 
And they did some analysis of this. And actually, I thought at first, I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense. They're older. I'm, you know, my birthday's actually tomorrow. And I feel like the every year, it's a little more painful than the year before even trying to stay healthy. So I'm like, it's just because they're old, but they actually did reanalyze that for age and actually was independent of age. So that was kind of interesting when they looked at that. Do you know if those incidents of chronic pain is kind of typical of the general population? Um, I had that number before. I don't have that number off the top of my head, but that's higher than the general mm-hmm. population. Yeah, it seems pretty high for, you know, pain that might be impacting your life. So basically what you're saying is that, you know, t- 21% of your patients that are 36 years old have chronic pain. That doesn't that doesn't kind of jive with what I think most of us see in the office on the day to day. And even the group in remission that they're 46 years old, that would be 26% of the people are reporting chronic pain. I think that's higher than what I think most of us would see in our general clinics. Do you agree with that? I do. And then I feel like this is a sort of higher socioeconomic group, college educated, married, doing okay, you know, not homeless people who you would think maybe haven't had such a hard life necessarily. I do see a lot of chronic pain in people in their, you know, early 40s, late 30s, if they've had these sort of physically demanding jobs throughout their lives. They played high school sports and they transitioned from that right into like, you know, jobs that just really take a ton of strength and they often get injured. Um, So by their 40s, they do have chronic pain, but I don't see that among more kind of white collar people. Psychiatric diagnosis is not uncommon. So 36.25% of adults with SUD in the past year had one or more psychiatric diagnoses compared with 31.57% of those in remission, so lower in the group that was in remission. Medical diagnoses, so mean number of medical diagnoses was actually not that high. So 0.66 for the group within the past year and 0.89 for those in remission. So out of those 12 composite medical diagnoses, they didn't accumulate many of them. So interestingly, they looked at this from a lot of different ways, but here's some things that I think I kind of took away from it. So in terms of statistically significant correlates of substance use disorder remission, so what makes it more likely that you're in remission? So positive associations, the number one was actually age, which I guess makes sense as you get older, you get a little wiser. Currently married, higher mental health composite score, they all had positive associations with remission. Negative associations, black race, Hispanic race, single people, that were never married, employment, and then actually it was interesting, higher function, physical function score, which I thought was surprising. They didn't really kind of comment on why that one is. It could be an outlier. So in terms of who had severe pain interference among those with substance use disorder in the past year, so the more active group, so older patients had more pain interference. Interestingly, race, gender, ethnicity, and marriage status did not have an effect here. Pain interference was higher in your homeless population, higher if you had veterans insurance. So kind of assuming that those patients were were veterans and had some sort of deployment history, lower income had higher pain interference, lower education levels had higher pain, psychiatric diagnoses had higher pain, more medical conditions had more pain. Interestingly, this group with more pain interference, which kind of goes to the cost analysis part of this, or they had higher hospital utilization and ER visits higher pain interference if you had a suicide attempt, if you had a lower general health score, lower mental health composite score, lower physical functioning score, more than one substance use disorder. Interestingly, they did make a comment that alcohol use disorder was the only indicator actually lower among those with pain interference when they looked at this in the past year, indicating that probably this was higher for groups that were non-alcohol. So the the, the non-alcohol substance use disorders probably even had a higher positive prediction than alcohol use disorder. 
association of severe pain interference among those with substance use disorder and remission. So if you were in remission, who had a lot of pain interference, not surprisingly, uh, psychiatric diagnoses, multiple psychiatric diagnoses, high number of medical conditions, lower mental health scores, lower physical functioning scores. So kind of like on the surface here, we're going to look at like who's in remission, who has pain, either using substance or not using kind of, this is like the clinical gestalt that I think a lot of us feel every day. Like these, these bucket list items are all characteristics that are often our chronic pain patients. So it kind of tracks with exactly what I would expect here. Yeah. None of it is a surprise at all. I would have been really surprised to see the opposite, but it just totally matches my clinical sense of who I see in the office. So to, to give you an idea, so they kind of, I actually had to make my own little table here just to kind of keep everything straight because they basically look at the data going forward here. Like what effect does mental health composite score have on remission? And what effect does remission have vice versa? What does pain interference have on the score? So they kind of analyze the data backwards and forwards, looking at these factors and how they affect each other. So kind of some independent associations of moderate to severe pain interference with mental health composite score and physical function score. So um, mental health composite score was an independent negative association with moderate to severe pain interference among those with past year substance use disorder and those in remission. Physical function score showed a significant independent negative association with moderate to severe pain interference. The association was greater among those with substance use disorder in the past year than those in remission. Mental health composite score had an independent positive association with substance use disorder remission. Physical function score had no statistically significant association with substance use disorder remission. So no matter how much you hit the gym, that did not increase your risk of, of remission. Can I just say that's like kind of sad? I'm always looking for reasons to tell people to exercise more. But if it's not going to, I'm not, won't tell someone not to exercise, but it'd be great for me to, you know, learn that exercise really helps people with their recovery. Well, this wasn't directly exercise. This is a physical function score. So it's like a surrogate market. Well, physical function, but, but still. Physical function score did have a significantly significant negative association with pain interference. So that was better for pain. The interaction between substance use disorder remission and moderate to severe pain interference was not statistically significant. So here's how I'm going to summarize this. That was very confusing, but here's my little takeaway chart of like, you know, rock, paper, scissors, what eats rock, what eats paper. So if you have a higher mental health composite score, you increase your chances of remission of substance use disorder, and you decrease your likelihood of pain interference in your life. If you have a higher physical function score, there was no change in your chance of remission and your pain interference score was lower. So higher physical function, lower pain, but no change in remission. If you had substance use disorder remission, so increasing your chances of remission, it had no effect on pain interference. It had no effect on physical function score. However, it did improve your mental health composite score. So remission had positive mental health benefits. And if you increase your pain interference, it decreases both your mental health composite score and your physical function score, which kind of tracks, right? So it kind of hurts all domains. So I thought that kind of takeaway kind of broke down the findings, I think the easiest for me to understand. Thank you for summarizing. I appreciate it. It took me a while to make that. I'm not going to lie. It's a great paper. It's just so much information that is good stuff. Yeah, no, sometimes you have to. The papers are so complicated. You, ha I always find myself making my own little chart um, that summarizes just the data that I'm interested in. So here's my takeaway overall. If you take away nothing from this paper besides the little cheat sheet I just gave you. Pain in patients with substance use disorder is very common. 20.6% 
or 25.6% of, of patients in this survey had chronic pain. Um, so that's really common. So it's going to be a common comorbid condition. We're going to see this very frequently. Substance use uh, remission alone is associated with improvement in psychological health and well-being from this survey, but not physical functioning. So it's good for your mental health, most likely. It possibly doesn't have a change in your physical function, at least from the data that we pulled here. Adults with moderate to severe pain interference were a very vulnerable population. So it's not surprising the chronic pain patients in this study are the same chronic pain patients I think all of us see every day that have high chance of chronic pain. So there are non-white, homeless, psychiatric illnesses, multiple medical comorbidities, and they had poor self-reported psychosocial and physical function, regardless of whether the substance use disorder was active or not. So the idea is if they have bad pain at baseline, you know, you can get them to remission. Don't think that that's going to be your answer. Controlling for population differences, moderate to severe pain interference remained independently associated with poor self-reported psychosocial and physical functioning with either current substance use disorder or substance use disorder remission. Interestingly, when they also analyze this, substance use disorder remission does weaken the negative association of moderate to severe pain interference with poor physical functioning, but not psychological functioning. So Will these results help me in patient care? And I guess that's kind of where we're at. You know, I'm a PCP, so I do have chronic pain patients, probably quite a bit um, if I were to add them all up. And I also practice addiction medicine. And the concepts of pain, function, and substance use disorder are often co-occurring, especially when chronic pain is kind of the, the nidus for a substance use disorder. It really becomes a central theme of our discussions on our visits. Oftentimes, it even kind of like is the mammoth in the room that that dominates the discussion. I just have to point out, I like how you call it the mammoth in the room and not just the elephant in the room. It's like even bigger and hairier than the elephant. It is hairier, <laughs> but not rare. So I guess maybe it wasn't perfect. The results of the study, they show that if you think you're just going to target the substance use disorder and you're going to treat that person where they're at, you're probably not. So I think that's my takeaway here is that just treating for remission of the substance use disorder is not going to fix the problem. So whatever they had beforehand, they won't have a substance use disorder will be more in control, but you still have whatever product was there beforehand. So you're going to have to look into a different plan for the chronic pain. The study also presents data that treating substance use disorder to induce remission alone is unlikely to address the pain interference in that person's life, uh, especially the physical and mental well-being that that can take on them. Interestingly, I thought the only caveat with this is a lot of this data from this, like I said, alcohol use disorder was the predominant substance here. This is a little different than probably most patients I, I see for substance use disorder. I do treat alcohol use disorder. I would say that the lion's share of patients, though, that see me on a regular basis for substance use disorder treatment or opioid use disorder, possibly with concurrent stimulant use disorder. So not practice changing, but certainly something I'm going to continue to think about as I move forward. I know this is very controversial amongst people, so no judgment to anyone out there if you're doing it, but some people do these tunneled visits where people do just recovery support, or they do just physical health at a, at a visit. I do everything together. So I do psychiatric med management. I do kind of physical health in terms of their chronic medical conditions and their substance use disorder all at a single visit, mostly because I don't have the access to do that as three visits. And I, I think it, it is better for them, from my opinion, because you, it's kind of a multidisciplinary way of treating the person. And I think that whatever you do, you're probably gonna have to come up with some way of, of tackling this from a, a multidisciplinary perspective. I think that's good. And I just think the point, especially, I guess, with alcohol use disorder, which is the predominant substance use disorder in this paper, that you can't just assume if you 
get the alcohol disorder under control, you're going to have magically fixed all the other problems. You know, the other problems are still going to be there. And so both setting expectations for patients and then also kind of just sticking with them. I mean, usually treating substance use disorder does make people more able to tackle some of their other problems, but the substance use disorder isn't really the, the cause of these chronic physical and mental problems, you know, and treating it doesn't necessarily make those other problems go away. So I think it's also good to set expectations as a doctor for yourself. You know, you think you're going to make everything all better if you treat one thing and you, you don't want to feel disappointed in yourself if you don't. Well, thank you, John. That was a real amazing presentation. Thank you for sorting out all this data for us. And I'm really glad that we talked about it because like we said, we all have a sense of this connection between chronic pain physical and mental health and substance use disorder. But I don't think a lot of us have really articulated exactly what we feel those connections are. So papers like this help us get a little closer to that. All right. So I want to do a talk back. I just am going to share one comment because it was really good and I want to focus on it. Um, We have a new friend of the podcast, a Dr. Aidan Bernstein, who is a general internal medicine fellow who studies alcohol use disorder. So he wrote in to answer a question we posed in episode 24, but we couldn't answer ourselves. So we didn't know the answer. We put that question out there and he actually did know the answer. So he emailed it to us. So if you remember, episode 24 was about the benefits of smoking cessation. And we had wondered why white people had substantially worse outcomes from smoking than other races. So usually we think of when we look at outcomes by race, people who suffer more racial discrimination, more stress due to their race will have worse health outcomes. But in this paper, white people who tend to have less racial discrimination had worse outcomes from smoking. And Dr. Bernstein said, I suspect that this is related to residual confounding in that patients who are white and smoked may have additional risk factors which weren't captured in the survey compared to those who were black and smoked. The comment was made that this wasn't seen in other areas of the medical literature, and I couldn't resist sharing that this actually is a common finding in the literature around the homeless population. So this thing that we thought was true is actually not true. And so I appreciate him pointing it out. He said, I suspect something similar is going on in the study you presented. And then he sent us a paper about mortality among the homeless in Boston, and I'm going to quote that paper that he sent us. They said, we found significantly higher mortality rates among white homeless adults in comparison to other racial groups, which differs from the pattern in the general population. This may reflect underlying racial differences in the pathways to homelessness. Evidence suggests that African Americans are more likely to be homeless because of structural factors such as discrimination and poverty, while homelessness among whites is more heavily linked to personal factors such as mental illness, trauma, family dysfunction, and substance use placing these individuals at higher risk of death. This is supported by the finding that whites accounted for a particularly disproportionate percentage of deaths due to drug overdose, 68%, substance use disorders, 68%, and suicide, 89%. So we'll put a link in that paper in the show notes. And I just want to thank Dr. Bernstein for teaching us something. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll send in more comments. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. If you know us in person, you can just tell us stuff as well. We'll put the links in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. 
Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.